it's an absolute. Without brokenness, nobody can come to salvation. Now, we try to make religions that can do that. We try and make other ways to come into this salvation without having to do it God's way. But if there's no brokenness, then there's no true repentance. And if there's no true repentance, then there's no true submission to God. We all know that Jesus longs to redeem us from pride and sin. But we also need to be convinced that he alone knows how to save the human soul and to bring it out of bondage and into freedom. For the last six weeks, we've been exploring how all of our struggles with sin can be traced back to the self-life and the pride that comes from it. Now it's time to look to the great savior and physician of our souls to see what his remedy really is. In this show, we look at the wonder of poverty of spirit, brokenness, and surrender. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Purity for Life. For the soul that knows its need, one of the most wonderful things Jesus ever said was that he did not come to call those who were self-righteous. He came to call sinners to repentance. In today's evangelical atmosphere of easy believism, it is incredibly important that Christians understand why brokenness, repentance, and surrender are indispensable parts of salvation. Evangelist Glenn Meldrum joins us to talk about this very important issue. Glenn, I want to open the first question by reading something that Pastor Steve wrote at the beginning of chapter 11. And he's talking about God saving a person's soul. And he says, The Holy Spirit attempts to break through the person's spiritual blindness with the reality of his lost condition. He does this by convicting the person of his sin and arranging circumstances that will enable him to see his need for a savior. As the burden of sin mounts, he gradually realizes that he has been in total rebellion against his maker. When a person recognizes his spiritual impoverishment, he knows that there is nothing he can do to save himself. He is utterly undone over his condition. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, Jesus exclaimed. The person is, as it were, flat on his face with nowhere else to turn for help but to God. In utter desperation, he must approach the Almighty with nothing but a plea. Have mercy upon my wretched soul. This is the only entrance into the kingdom of heaven. It's that last statement that I really wanted to focus on because that makes poverty of spirit or brokenness of extreme importance if that's the only way that we can come into the kingdom of heaven. Why is that the only entrance? Well, in the infinite genius of God in flesh and blood, and his speaking on the Sermon on the Mount, he opens it with that first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit. And that is the foundation of all the beatitudes. And actually, I'd go so far, the foundation of the entire Sermon on the Mount. Hmm. And if that is not understood and attained to a certain degree in a person's life, they can't go to the second beatitude, which Mm. is blessed are those who mourn. And he can't then go to the third one, Mm. which blessed are the meek. 
And it's just the nature of, of it and the wisdom of what that is there, that it has to begin with brokenness. We'll never seek out a savior till we see we need a savior. And as long as we look to everything else in the world to save us, whether it's ourselves or other people or money or drugs or whatever, as long as we look to other things to save us, then we're not going to look to Christ. And so it's, it's an absolute. Without brokenness, nobody can come to salvation. Now, we try to make religions that can do that, you know, and call them Christians. We try and make other ways to come into this salvation without having to do it God's way. But if there's no brokenness, then there's no true repentance. And if there's mm. no true repentance, then there's no true submission to God. And so it has to be in this progression. And we try to avoid it because it is painful. Yeah. And of course, it all depends on the individual, the personality, the past, and, and so on. So it doesn't mean somebody's going to be necessary at, at an altar bawling their eyes out. But one way or the other, we have to come to the agonizing truth that we are wrong and that God is right. Mm. And we have to grab hold of that enough and see the truth of it before we will bring out what true repentance is, what John the Baptist spoke of, where he rebuked the religious people. And he said, bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. Yeah. And so repentance has an expression, not just words, because we can just go and say, I'm sorry, and never change. That's yeah. worldly sorrow. Mm. But godly sorrow brings about a change. It's, it's that we begin to really see that there has to be a change because we can't keep going the way that we've been going. And that's the problem. When we get ourselves so stuck in the sin, we are trapped in this thing that this is what we think we need or we need to go deeper into it or whatever it is to satisfy ourselves. So somehow we have to come to the end of it all and see that our sin can't bring joy to us, can't meet our needs. And most of all, it will never open heaven's gates to us. Mm. So there's no hope of entrance into the kingdom of God. And that is the wisdom of hell to try and bring religion into the setting to try and dumb down people so they don't feel the reality of conviction. So you know, people are glad to feel that they can come to salvation and make heaven their home any other way other than to, through Christ. Yeah. So they'll be glad to do that. I mean, they'll give money, they'll go to church regularly and so on, but they don't want to deal with the uh, rebel self, with the idle self. And that's what must be done. So a person can pray a sinner's prayer and never repent. Yeah. Never come to the place of real surrender to Christ because they've never come to the place of brokenness that produces repentance that produces the meekness which is surrender and so that's really why it's so important and if people don't understand it they are religious then outside of salvation and that's a very sad place to be you've been an evangelist for the last 20 plus years so you have a really good broad experience with what's going on in the american church and i've heard you say that compared to where things were when you first were saved back in the 70s, the, the church is in a terrible state of decline. What do you think would happen if people began to hear across the nation that this thing you've been talking about, poverty of spirit and brokenness and seeing their absolute need of a savior would start to be preached much more strongly? Well, I think the first thing that would happen is a church would get saved. Mm. And that could be revolutionary. Hmm. Um, old revivalists would always end up thinking the first thing they have to do in their revival was to bring the church to repentance and to salvation because how can you reach the lost until the church gets saved? Wow. And so they would be actually preaching to the church sometimes for a couple weeks before they really started seeing the lost get saved because until the church gets saved, the lost isn't going to come, come in. And 
for the lost to come in, they have to see that the church has something worth coming to. Mm. So if we don't offer anything different than what the world has, why would they come? Mm. I mean, why would they take their beer money and give it to the church? You know, they have to be delivered from the whole love of alcohol and the love of sin and the love of this stuff before they'll start seeking after God and be willing to find something that's better. Yeah. And so the first thing would be the church would get saved. But when the church gets saved, when it gets right, when it starts getting the world out of it and starts having a passion for Christ, then there's going to be the blessing upon them. And I believe the natural blessing of the life of Christ being poured through the church is going to be that message of salvation going to a dying world. And it's not going to be, you know, come to Jesus because it'll make your life better. Yeah. It's going to be come to Jesus because you're at war with him and he loves you and he wants to rescue you and he doesn't want to cast you into hell. So he's mm-hmm. giving you this tremendous opportunity to come to him and obtain forgiveness and a pardon for your sins. And so it's absolutely necessary. If the church wants to do anything of eternal substance, then they have to take this route. Otherwise, the church will predominantly, by and large, be irrelevant uh, in the days, months, and decades to come because we've forsaken the truth. One of the things that's established really early on in the book is the problem that every human has with the self-life and the pride that emerges from it and all of the sins that thrive when a person's self-life is really healthy, you could say. Um, when we think about surrender, what part does that play in breaking the self-life so that the sin and the misery that comes from sin can be um, undone? Well, I think if we go back to the Beatitudes again and we look at the progression that's there that begins with brokenness, then we come to the second one that's mourning, which is repentance, and then the third one, which is meekness, which has to do with surrender. Hmm. Uh, we're rebels. I mean, we're all rebels. Um, and if people don't realize the rebellion that's inside of them, then they're, go- they're never going to deal with it. So they have to see the rebellion that's in them before they will begin to conquer it. Hmm. And that can be the arrogant individual that is just so full of self, it's outwardly uh, seen by everybody, or the individual that uh, has this natural kind of meekness, but it still has this rebellion inside of them. You can have a, a grandma that's never chewed or smoked in her life and as much rebellion against God as a some gangbanger in New York. Mm-hmm. So it's not the outward sins. It's the, the reality that we have a sin nature and that we are sinners by nature and by choice. Mm. And if we don't deal with that, then it's not going to change. Now, Steve made a point in his book. He said, they have never felt the need to throw themselves upon the mercy of God. And what a great statement. That's really what it is. People don't, aren't surrendered. They have never come to the point to see their need of surrender because mm. their own rebellion has blinded them to it and they don't understand the benefit that comes out of it. But until we see that we're a sinner in need of a Savior and are broken of, uh, over our sin and rebellion, we see what it has done not just to ourselves, to other people. But until that happens, we're not going to want to come to the point of repentance. Yeah. And then until that repentance is in our life, we're still going to be a rebel. So we might be a religious rebel, but we're still going to be a rebel. We're still going to be in control of our own life. Hmm. And so when we finally see what sin is and what sin does and how it's damaged us and damaged other people... Brokenness will help us to see how ugly it is, and it'll begin to hurt. And that is a painful thing, but it'll begin to hurt. We will see what it has done, the pain that is produced, and we'll begin to mourn over it. And it's in that mourning that true repentance can come. 
And then through that mourning, it's not just saying, okay, I'm sorry for the sins I did. Let me go on and keep the status quo. It's the idea, I'm sick of what I am in the natural. I'm sick of my sin. I'm sick of my self-life. I'm sick of all this junk. God, I need a spiritual revolution, but I don't know how to do it. Mm. I can't accomplish it in my life. So they begin to see their helplessness in the situation that causes them to begin to cry out to God. And that's where surrender is. It's in this place that I can't do this. And when that dependency comes into our life, we see we must have Christ. We must have him. Well, it's interesting that you describe surrender that way because I um, I think some people probably, and I would see it this way in, the, in my own personality, that surrender is more like, God's bigger, he's stronger, he can tell me what to do, and and surrender is, fine, I'll do what you're telling me to do. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like, I don't really want to, mm-hmm. but I'll do it because it's right and good. And But that's a really interesting way of, of describing surrender, which is that I'm in so much need and I, like full dependence. That is a beautiful, that's way, that's very attractive. Mm-hmm. That's not about God crushing you down but about remaking you and mm-hmm. that's lovely yeah it gives us the uh uh let's say it opens us up to the blessings of god that can't come any other way mm. you know and that has nothing to do with money or prosperity or anything else but to the inward life and mm. to that place of relationship with god and part of it i think is also the aspect we don't understand him as well as we should as father mm-hmm. that he's not wanting to do things in our life out of cruelty but he is really laboring in our life in ways we can't understand because he wants to be good to us. Yeah. He longs to be good to us. Yeah. And he wants us to come to the place that he can be good to us because otherwise he'd have to violate who he is mm-hmm. and he won't do that. Mm-hmm. So he must be consistent to himself and to his character and to his holiness. And when we begin to conform to him and understand what surrender is, then he can freely uh, show his goodness and blessing and favor to us. Mm. You know, it would be really wonderful if at the point of conversion, when we really break down before God and see our need and then God comes in, it'd be awesome if that was like the end. We were just perfectly sinless, never had to struggle anymore. But one thing that it seems like is pretty consistent with people who have walked with the Lord is that they just say, this is the beginning. There's more tearing down that needs to happen. There's more discipline. There's more confrontation. It's like you have to go through those steps of the beatitude over and over and over. Mm-hmm. So like, what's the point of all this pain? Well, Pastor Steve brought out in the book uh, about the aspect of Jesus being the vine. And I think it's just a basic idea that can help us understand, but I think there's more, or let's say, other ways we can explain it. But Jesus is the vine dresser. And as the vine dresser, his whole purpose is to produce as much fruit out of the vines as possible. Hmm. And so he will graft in other branches into the vine that they might produce fruit. But if there's a branch that is diseased or a branch that is dead, then for the, the, the health of the vine, or let me see even more, for the health of the, the branches and the ability to produce fruit, he must prune. Hmm. And so that means some branches must be cut off, some must be cut back. And he will do what is necessary to produce as much fruit out of the vine as possible. 
And his goal is to bring us to the place of fellowship with him. But the only way that we can fellowship with him is we must be like Jesus. Because the standard of the Christian faith is Jesus. Mm. And so what God blesses is Jesus. So if we want God's blessings, if we want his life, then we have to have Jesus. And so he becomes the standard of it. And so he is laboring to bring about Christ's likeness in our life. And he does it for so many reasons. I mean, there's so many reasons because of the benefits that come out of it. You know, he does it because he knows that the more Christ-like we are, the better our marriages will be. Mm. The more Christ-like we are, the better the love in the body of Christ will be. The, mm-hmm. You know, the more we're like Jesus, the more effective we'll be in reaching a perishing world. And I mean, he knows that what we need most out of anything is himself and to be like him. And so the more we're like him, the more the benefits of his life becomes real in and through us. And so I hate to say it, there's pain involved in it. And there doesn't have to be. I mean, if we were people that submitted, God could whisper to us, the son, change that, stop that, do this, and we'd say yes. But because we're rebels and we don't want to take that whole process of brokenness to repentance to surrender, so he has to turn the volume up to bring us to a place of maybe, if I might say it like this, the next step of brokenness. For brokenness to go deep in our life, it's usually going to be more, some more pain that's going to have to come into us mm. uh, to bring us to the place of repenting of something we didn't want to repent of or acknowledge that was there, that we might come to the place to surrender. So I think this whole process of what he takes us through is actually very phenomenal because it's an expression of his love that I think we very much fail to understand. Mm. Um, who are we that God would take the time to discipline me, to correct me? Who, who are we? Who am I that he would be that concerned? Um, and if you put man in the, in the real setting of what they are with these itty-bitty people on this little itty-bitty planet around this itty-bitty sun among, in the midst of this humongous creation, and yet he cares and sets his affection upon those itty-bitty people, and mm-hmm. then in our arrogance we resist him and defy him and shake our fist in his face— Actually, we're pretty ridiculous people because <laughs> of what we do. But that yeah. place of learning surrender uh, and learning it quicker uh, will produce so much more joy and peace and so much benefit that we would do well to begin to evaluate that and understand how it's to be lived out. We're going to take a break from Glenn's interview for a few minutes. I'm sure you would agree that God's word leaves no doubt that he abhors pride, but is irresistibly drawn to humility. We live in a culture where pride is cultivated and celebrated, where prosperity comes relatively easily, and where God's blessings are often taken for granted. But there is coming a day when the prideful will be exposed for what they really are, and those who humble themselves will be openly rewarded by God. I'd like to take a few minutes to look back at the life story of a renowned saint, William Carey. He lived during the early 20th century and he's known as the father of modern missions. What made this man so mightily used by God? Let's see what we can learn about his character and his relationship with Jesus. You would think that one of the major denominations would have birthed the modern-day missionary movement, that its pioneer would have had hands laid on him in one of the grand cathedrals and would have been the subject of a glorious farewell celebration. However, 
It was modest means that inaugurated this monumental segment of church history. As a young Christian, William Carey and a couple of friends formed a mission society to explore the idea of taking the gospel to India. However, when they shared their idea at the local minister's meeting, they were ridiculed to scorn. Undaunted, young William began making plans to go to India. Upon hearing of his plans, his father wrote him a scathing letter and rebuked him for such a foolhardy pursuit. Worse than that, his wife refused to go or allow their children to go. William responded to his wife in a letter dated May 6, 1793. If I had all the world, I would freely give it all to have you and my children with me. But the sense of duty is so strong as to overpower all other considerations. I cannot turn back without guilt on my soul. Dorothy finally relented, and the small party boarded a ship that arrived in Calcutta six months later. However, the modern missionary movement did not begin without much hardship. Within a few months, their money was gone. But Mr. Carey knew that God had called them and no amount of satanic opposition was going to stop him. Unfortunately, Dorothy's heart was not united with William in this venture. Rather than seeing it as a marvelous opportunity to serve God and bring Christianity to a nation steeped in spiritual darkness, all she could see were the hardships. When their youngest son died, she went over the edge emotionally. Carrie's first seven years in India were extremely difficult, to say the least. But this period was the crucible where his faith was tested and his self-life crushed. Eventually, others joined them from England. Before long, the little band of missionaries was busily printing portions of scripture in the local language. During the course of the next 30 years, Carey translated all or parts of the Bible into 34 different Indian languages and dialects. Not only this, but he opened many schools to train children and a Bible college that would send out Christian ministers for many years to come. Although his beginnings were humble, God mightily used his life to open up an entire region of the world that had been sealed shut to the gospel. As his life began to come to an end, he directed all the praise to the Lord for every accomplishment. George Godgerly, one of his contemporaries, tells of visiting the old missionary days before his death. He was seated near his desk in the study, dressed in his usual attire. His eyes were closed, his hands clasped together. His appearance filled me with a kind of awe, for he seemed as one listening to his master's summons and ready to go. I sat there for about half an hour without a word, for I feared to break the silence and to call back to earth the spirit that seemed almost in heaven. At last, however, I spoke, and well do I remember the very words that passed between us. Dear friend, I said, you seem to be standing on the very border of eternity. Do not think it wrong, then, that I ask your thoughts and feelings. The question roused Dr. Carey. Slowly, he opened his eyes, and then with a feeble, though earnest voice, he answered, 
I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. But when I think I am about to appear in God's holy presence, I remember all my sins. I tremble. A few days before this visit, as his health seemed to be deteriorating beyond all hope of recovery, another friend asked if he had any preference as to the passage of Scripture used for his funeral sermon. He replied, Oh, I feel that such a poor, sinful creature is unworthy to have anything said about him. But if a funeral sermon must be preached, let it be from the words, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. At his request, cut into his gravestone were the following words. William Carey, born August 17, 1761, died June 9, 1834. A wretched, poor, and helpless worm, on thy kind arms I fall. William Carey's story is a picture of what Jesus said in John 12:14, that if a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it will bear much fruit. He's an example of what God can do with a man who has been broken over his sins, saved by Jesus at the cross, and fully surrendered to God. As a result, William Carey went out to bear much fruit for God in India. He wasn't looking to be seen as someone great, but to testify to God's greatness. He wasn't looking to do his own will, but the will of God. Now, you may never go to India like William Carey did, but if you follow the same spiritual path, that of repentance, brokenness, and surrender, your life too will bear much fruit. Let's get back to the interview with Glenn Meldrum. So in chapter 12, one of the things that Pastor Steve talks about is how through this process, as we go through the crucifixion process of our old nature, the life of Christ is actually being manifested in us. Can you just talk about the beauty of that, that Jesus would be lived out in us? Well, central to that is going to be the crucified life because that is tied into the whole process of the Beatitudes of brokenness, mourning, uh, and uh, meekness. So it's, yeah. it's all going to be part of it. Until we understand the blessing and the benefit that comes through the crucified life, we're not going to see the necessity of it. Um, Jesse and I have a phenomenal marriage, not because we're phenomenal people, but because very early on in our marriage, we began to understand the crucified life and we started living it. And good marriages are not made because of great personalities or because of, you know, all these external things or even the giftings that's in their own life. Good marriages are made through dying to self. Hmm. And we go to couples all the time that, you know, people that are wanting to get married or marriages that are struggling and will bring that little key out that is so powerful until you're willing to die to your own rights and your own wants and your ambitions and all this other stuff, you're going to be the very cause of the ruin of your marriage. So if you die, though, you will find great blessings mm. and you can't crucify your spouse. So you have to have your spouse that your spouse has to do that. But it will begin to change everything if you'll begin to do it. Well, a statement that uh, Pastor Steve made in that chapter is he understood, referring to Paul, 
that a believer will only enjoy the victorious Christian life up to the level he has allowed the Lord to crucify the old self-life. And what a phenomenal statement, but that goes right with what Jesus went and said. You want to save your life, you got to lose your life. You know, if you will die, then you can have resurrection life. But if you aren't, if you aren't going to die, all you'll have is a natural life, which mm. will only bring death in the end. Mm. And so in the natural, it sounds crazy because the world is teaching us, you know, go for the gusto, go for, you know, whatever you want, fulfill every desire. You have yeah. the right, you deserve this. Yeah, yeah. And yet it brings ruin. It does the total opposite. And Jesus goes to us and says something that is so crazy in the natural, says, die. Die to your rights, die to your sin nature, die to all the bitterness and hate and all the junk in your life, and you'll get life out of that. And we scratch our heads saying, why? It doesn't make sense. But we have to get down to the nitty-gritty here. The life he's talking about is not the natural life, but the life of Christ that becomes a reality in us. And from that life in us, we begin to share in his life and the joys and the peace and all the, the victory that comes through that. So we begin to operate in his life because we're dying to our own life. So how do we start killing that thing? Well, I guess at the, the root of this is that we have to have a better love. We have to have a better love, a love that will compel us to want to crucify this thing that has been so much a part of our life, even though it's caused us pain and suffering. We must have a better love and realize that that is able to do uh, something in our life that we could never do ourselves. Yeah. You can have a person that is just filled with self-pity. I mean, they're consumed with self-pity. And it's a miserable life. I mean, people that are consumed with self-pity, they're miserable. Yeah. Then yeah. they make everybody else miserable. <laughs> But they've been so much a part of that. That ugly self has been with them all their life. They would many times rather keep that ugly self than to die to it. Yeah. So there has to be this better love. Hmm. There has to be. We hmm. have to go and say, I'm so weary of self, but that's not enough. We have to say, I'm weary of self, but we have to understand what the prize is. We have to see Jesus. And we have hmm. to understand that it's his call to himself that he's wanting us to crucify our sinful nature that we might have this relationship with him, this fellowship with him. And when he's the prize, then we can go and begin to crucify this sin, life of sin, this, the sin nature. The, and if I might even say something more, he wants us to do more than just crucify the act of sin. He wants us to come to the place that we start to crucify the love of sin. Mm. So that we don't, that, that one, what we once loved, we no longer want to love. Yeah, yeah. That what yeah. we once clung to, we don't want it clinging to us anymore because we see what it is. That it's this, in essence, this body of death. Yeah. And if you think of this for a moment, and this is what Paul referred to when he referred to the body of death, but I'll bring this illustration out anyway. One torture that they used to have and form of execution was that they would take a corpse and tie the man they were executing. Uh, to that dead body, you know, face to face, mouth to mouth, hand to hand, uh, you know, all the way wow. down. And what would happen is yeah. that corpse, as it began to rot, it would begin to rot the man. Wow. And the maggots that would begin to be in the man, in the in the corpse, would begin to get into that, that man that would be slowly rotting to death. Mm. And that's what the self-life is. I mean, what a good illustration. It's this body of death that we've been strapped to yeah. our whole life. That's what we have been. That's what we have lived with. We've been slowly rotting along with that corpse. And then Jesus goes and says, I have an answer, but it's going to be this painful thing. you got to cut that corpse off. you know. And we go and say, but I've lived with it all my life. 
but you got to cut that corpse off. It's killing you. Don't you realize that it's just rotting you out and destroying your life? And so we fight against God to cut off this corpse Mm. that is slowly killing us. But yet when we begin to cut it off, we start finding healing that comes to those areas. Mm -hmm. And then we find more and more healing as we cut more and more of that corpse off of us, we start getting healing and life starts coming back into us. And so it's just kind of an interesting illustration of what it is to crucify this thing that brings death to us. And what life comes out in the world says, oh, hold on to the corpse, cling to the corpse. Yeah. And yet Jesus saying, don't you see what it's really doing to you? Mm. Destroying everything you think is important, everything dear to you. It's destroying your marriage, it's destroying everything. If you cut it off, you'll have life. And uh, we're wise when we do it and very, very foolish when we don't. There's one element of the new life that I'd like to focus on as we're closing, and that is that this dependence on God for everything, this this faith. You know, it's like it's the opposite of pride, pride being in control, pride being dependent on self and self-sufficient. And now we're called to this life of faith, which is utter dependence on someone other than ourselves. Um what has God taught you about living a life of faith? Well, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, you have the simple verse that defines Christianity. It's probably the best definition of Christianity in the entire Bible. Hmm. And it says, any of you that would want to follow Jesus must walk as Jesus did. And so that sums up all of Christianity right there. You want to be a Christian? Look at Jesus, study Jesus, live like Jesus. Okay, here's Mission Impossible. <laughs> yeah. Right? So you come to the place, what do you do? You have to see your, your inability to do it. And it takes us back to brokenness. But when you look at Jesus, here was God incarnate. And we have to understand that dimension. We have to understand that this was God in flesh and blood. Mm-hmm. And not something of God, but he was God, fully God. But yet he took upon humanity, so he's fully human. And you look in the Gospel of John, and this comes out wonderful in the Gospel of John in various places where Jesus would say things like, everything I say, I say because the Father told me to say it. Mm-hmm. Or everything I do, I do because the Father told me to do it. Yeah. And then he would say, well, I do this because I came not to seek my own, but him who sent me. Yeah. And I do everything to please the Father. And you have all these sayings that are there about what Jesus was all about in total obedience. Yeah. Yet this was God incarnate. He did not lose his personhood, his identity, by total submission to the Father, nor would we. So through our submission to Christ, it doesn't mean we stop being who we are as individuals. It means that the ugly self is dealt with, is being crucified. But what's going on then is the purifying of self or of who we are as individuals, more to what we were originally created to be, but from the fall that has so twisted and demented us. And so this whole life of faith and this life of of obedience is really a, a life of of joy and peace and it's worthwhile and the fight and struggles you got to go through mm. to die to self to bring more and more of the life of Christ into us that we can walk more like him the blessing of it is just tremendous mm. and we have to understand that and it's not that we do it for the sake of just getting life I mean um when anybody comes to Christ, they come to Christ out of selfish reasons. Yeah. And nobody can come any other way. Yeah. But that's not where God wants to leave us. He wants to bring us to the point where we are following Jesus because we love him. Mm. And when we sin, we want to repent because we love him. 
And we don't want our sins separating us. So we're quick to repent. And we repent well when we do rebel because we want that life of Christ in us. We want to walk by faith in this love relationship with this God that wants to make himself more real to us as time goes on. Mm. And so all of the Christian faith is moving us to the place of greater relationship with him. You know, and ultimately we'll see the fullness of that there in heaven. But until that time, he wants us to uh, do basically what he told us within the Lord's Prayer, uh, that cry of let your kingdom come in this life as it is in heaven. Mm. So in essence, how they live in heaven, God help me to live right now. Mm. Mm. You know, just another way of saying uh, that Christianity is to walk like Jesus walked in this world, but help us to live like that. Well, he doesn't give us a command that he's not going to give us the grace to live out, but we have to want to live it out. And for all those that really want to be like Jesus, to walk like Jesus, to be a true follower of him, will find that he will give them the grace to overcome what they never thought that they could. We don't overcome because we don't want to overcome. Hmm. When we want to overcome, God will give an infinite, endless amount of grace that we can be more than conquerors. And that's what his promises are again and again in the Word of God. I'm sure that if you've been listening with an open heart, you're seeing areas of your life where you need deeper repentance, not merely from the outward actions, but from the inward attitudes, and especially from the love of those sins. This is really the crux of the issue. What do we love? What do we desire? What are we truly living for? Maybe some of you have even realized that you've never been through this process of repentance. If that is you, please do not ignore this. Ask God to bring you into the process of salvation through poverty of spirit. One of our greatest needs is to have our spiritual eyes opened so that we can see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And in the light of his holiness and love, we begin to see the reality of the evil that is in our hearts. Please, let him show you how he feels about your sin, how it grieves his heart, and how it hurts others around you. Whether your struggle is with self-sufficiency, laziness, criticizing others, lying, sexual sin, bitterness, bragging, whatever it is. Let Jesus bear it on his cross and pay for it. He cares for you and he wants to cleanse you by his powerful blood of all sin's guilt and power and then give you himself in return. It is the best trade you will ever make. As you learn to crucify your old nature, I promise you, abundant life in Christ will follow. You'll have a deeper fellowship with Jesus, an overflowing of love, and his joy and victory in your life. For others, maybe you've been resisting God in some way, and today is the day to surrender. There ought to be a definite day in our lives when we consciously give him all. We'll go where he wants us to go, do what he wants us to do, love who he wants us to love, and give what he wants us to give. Giving control of your life to Jesus is worth it because he is the most loving and glorious being in the universe. And thank God that he made a way for us to become like him through the knowledge of his son Jesus and through the cross. May God bless you and keep you this week. Thanks for joining us on Purity for Life. Purity for Life is a production of Pure Life Ministries. 
For over 30 years, Pure Life Ministries has been the go-to for those whose lives have been devastated by sexual sin. Visit us on the web for more information about our life-changing counseling programs and powerful teaching materials. Also check out our video clips of men and women whose lives have been radically transformed. All that and more at purelifeministries.org.